Welcome to another Distinct Nostalgia by MIM. Brought to you in partnership with Life Rooms and Mersey Care NHS Foundation Trust. Staying well, staying home. He's famous for creating one of the most iconic theme tunes of all time, and today we're graced with his presence as he talks us through his amazing career. Known as Mr Duff Duff, in fact that's the title of his new autobiography, Simon May, composer of the legendary EastEnders theme, has been giving us a very special interview. He's chatting, as ever, to MIM's Ashley Byrne. Looking forward to this one. Let's go way, way back, shall we, and talk about you and your your career and where it all sort of began. I mean, obviously, we know you're known for big things like EastEnders and Howard's Way and, and all that kind of thing. But what were you doing before you got into the world of, of theme tunes and things? What was where, where did it all start? Hi, Ashley. Yeah, it started after I left university. I went into teaching for seven years. I taught at Kingston Grammar School in Surrey. I taught French and German, actually and hockey. <laughs> but towards the end of uh, that stay at Kingston Grammar School, I'd always wanted to become a professional uh, songwriter. And I actually wrote a musical for my school called Smike, based on the, uh, an extract from a scene of uh, Nicholas Nickleby in, in Boys Hall in, in Yorkshire. BBC picked up on the musical and mounted their own Christmas production for BBC television. Uh, and it was very successful. Uh, Beryl Reed was one of the leads in the, in, in the cast. Ian Sharrock, who went on to Emma Delphal, he was also played the lead part of Smite. Leonard Whiting, who was in Romeo and Juliet, Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet. So it had a good pedigree and it did really well. And as a result of that, ATV Music, as it was called then, it's now called Sony ATV Music, they approached me, we're talking about in 1973, and they offered me a, a songwriting contract, which, you know, was fantastic to have the chance to be able to pursue writing music as a full-time career. I then sort of uh, became a signed writer at ATV Music, and um, I had my first lucky break with Crossroads. It's quite a convoluted story, but basically Jack Barton, who was the executive producer of Crossroads, he had come to see Smike. We didn't know each other at all, but he just came to see Smike in Surbiton and absolutely loved the show. I didn't know that he'd seen the show, but it was only a few months later when Jack Barton wrote to ATV Music and said, I'd just like half a minute's music to use as radio background music on one of my episodes of Crossroads. And fortuitously for me, ATV Music sent up a song that I'd written with Roger Holman, my collaborator at the time. It was called Born With A Smile On My Face. And they sent it up to Jack. He saw my name on the credits for this song born with a smile on my face and he phoned me up and said you won't believe this Simon we've never met but I saw your musical two months ago and here I am fortuitously getting uh, a song that you've written so we had a lovely chat on the phone and to cut a long story short we decided to meet up because there was a great deal of coincidence and empathy going on Jack and I met got on like a house on fire and he said to me after we'd been chatting for about an hour he said do you know what Simon 
I only really wanted this as background music for half a minute, but do you know what? I think I'm going to turn this into a big story. So let's get the singer Stephanie De Sykes and let's offer her a part at Crossroads, playing the part of a pop star who escapes from all the uh, toils and tribulations of the industry and that goes to the Crossroads Motel to spend two or three days. And this storyline of Stephanie, Jack was he, was, he was ahead of Simon Cowell on this one. He actually started using Born With A Smile On My Face as part of the programme. So about six weeks later, Crossroads was coming out for about a week, two weeks, and it was plugging Born With A Smile On My Face to death. Not surprisingly, uh, that helped. What didn't help, it it was the reason that the song became a a massive hit. It got to number two. And um, that was the start of a lovely professional friendship that I had with Jack. And as a result of the success of Born With A Smile, he would phone me up and say, Simon, I've got a storyline for Benny. Can you write Benny's theme for me? And... Uh, in 1976, he said, I've got a lovely love triangle story. Uh, what a really nice love song. Um, so I wrote Summer of My Life. You were the summer of my life. You were everything to me. You were all a man could be. You turned my darkness into Went up to Birmingham and uh, played it to Jack in the big... Do do you know the ATV Studios, Ashley? Well, it's a big... It's a massive Studio One, and there was a grand piano. That was the only place in the whole of the ATV Studios that had a piano. So I went into this massive studio. It's it's where... um, What was that quiz? It wasn't a quiz show, but it was a talent show that ATV used to make. And um, so I played the song to Jack in the studio and he said, that's fabulous, just what I want. And over a cup of coffee, he said, well, I wonder who, who would you like to get to sing this? And I said, mm, how about me, please, Jack? Because, you know, I sung it in the demo. And he said, hey, that's a good idea. So not only did I have another hit song on Crossroads, it started a short-lived career as a pop, pop singer for me. It was also played a lot on radio. Uh, Tony Blackburn made it his record of the week on Radio 1. So it wasn't just because of Crossroads. It got legitimate radio play as well. I've been looking back at it, actually. You're a, you're a good-looking guy. Thank you so much. <laughs> yes, a lady said to me the other day, she said, I've just seen you on YouTube, your excerpt, when you were on top of the pops. She said virtually the same as you, actually, except it came over a bit rude. She said... God, you used to be very good looking. I said, yeah, what am I now? And she realised what she'd said. She said, no, 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 you're still good looking. 
something interesting, wasn't it, about Crossroads? It was quite, uh, I mean, obviously there was Jack there, but obviously you got Meg and all that. There was something, and of course Lou Grade was behind ATV as well. There was something sort of showbiz and theatrical about the whole thing, wasn't there, really? They always liked to push the bow boat out, didn't they? Yeah, totally. And the reason for that was that Jack Barton, bless him, was very much a theatrical person. Although he uh, produced Crossroads before then, he had a lot of experience in live theatre. Uh, and he was, as you rightly say, uh, the programme was, as a result of Jack, very theatrical. I mean, Noel Gordon, for example, uh, you couldn't get anybody more theatrical than that. Did Did you hear Radio 2 this Sunday last we were doing a rerun, weren't they, of, of Paul's uh, Paul O'Grady's uh, Crossroads reunion thing? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and Paul kindly played about four or five of my Crossroads hits, yeah. which is <laughs> a, a montage of Simon May hits on Crossroads. And um, Malcolm, who's the uh, yeah producer, yeah, great guy. And um, we have oh, he's a big fan of Crossroads and a huge fan of Crossroads. Yeah, yeah he's a huge fan of soap and um, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he's. Uh, yeah, lovely guys. Well, on Distinct Nostalgia so far, we've done, we did a big interview with Tony Adams, who played Adam Chance. Right. And we've done, I did the very last interview ever done with Hazel Adair. And I've not put it out yet, but Distinct Nostalgia fans at some point will hear that. And we did it, we've, we've interviewed her son as well, because Hazel was quite pioneering. You know, she did, before um, Crossroads, she was the, she, she, she brought out the first female orientated soap, which was called Compact, I think. That's right, compact. And she, and wasn't it also Mrs. Dale's diary? I think she was involved in that, and she was she was also involved in the first interracial kiss in um, Emergency Ward Ten, I think it was. Yeah, as well. that's right. Yeah. So she, so she, you know, quite a pedigree. So yeah, I, I did a, did the last interview, so we're going to put that out at some point. But Crossroads, yeah. Crossroads is weird, isn't it? Because it, <laughs> it's sort of it, it was such hammered in many ways by you know people saying wobbly sets and bad scripts and this that, and the other, but actually. It's one of those programs that still endures to this day. It's got a huge fan base still now. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Uh, and in a kind of way, despite the the fact that ATV economised on the costs spent on the show, which explains why the sets were sometimes a, a little bit flimsy, Jack, as the exec producer, was actually ahead of his time, and he did he addressed issues in the way that EastEnders has been doing for the last, since it started. Jack was dealing with fairly, um, what's an English word for the French word, osé, daring, really sort of ahead of the curve stuff. So in a, in a way, it, it wasn't, I think, deserving of as much of the criticism as it received. And I think that's because it dealt with new issues and because the characters were so strong, great actors, all that. Tony Jill and all of that wonderful acting. The soaps now do lots of episodes, you know, when we're not in the situation we're in at the moment, but they do episode after episode. Crossroads was doing that years ago. They were doing five or six episodes a week, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. Totally, totally. It was a very efficient, if it's a horrible word maybe to use, but machine. It, it was very tight, the whole schedule. Yeah, in, in, it's, it's, it's interesting, actually, because I've sort of had a very sort of mixed career in, in, with regard to soaps i've had been blessed with great success with say eastenders howard's way trainer and yet i've sort of been involved in soaps like crossroads and el dorado that have suffered at the hands of the crits and i think again el dorado 
if it had been given an, an, a few more months to develop, El Dorado would have been a massive and still would be a massive hit show. No, I absolutely agree. And of course, you know, at the end of the day, people can criticise Crossroads, but it had such a huge you know, following in terms of numbers. And even when they brought it back, of those two those two uh, reenactments of it in the early 2000s, yeah. uh, we're still pulling in a, a big viewing figures for, for after yeah. afternoon soap, you know. Yeah. So at the day, you know, the public loved it, really, you know. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not sure that the audience of Crossroads was confined demographically to a certain age group. I think a lot of young people loved Crossroads and, and still sort of have some kind of affection for it. Not, 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 not in millions, but there's still a real cult following for Crossroads amongst young people, actually. The, the one big thing about Crossroads, I think, more than most, more than a lot of programmes, is the fact that it had such an iconic theme tune. Tony Hatch's theme tune yeah. is fantastic, isn't it, really? Yeah. I mean, yeah. 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 T- Tony and I, we've met, uh, um, and, and we get along really well. I wouldn't say we're close friends, but we are mates. I was on his radio show last year and things like that. So, and he's always been very gracious and kind to me. And, and that feeling is reciprocal. Emmerdale Farm and Crossroads are, are two of the most iconic TV themes. Well, he did Neighbours as well, didn't he? He was Neighbours as well. Absolutely, yeah. 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 I mean, what was funny about Crossroads <laughs> was, because they were rushing to put everything together, was the fact that the, the theme tune, of course, was you know was, was fantastic theme tune, and of course at the end, the end credits, they tried to do the end credits as though they were like crossing over each other, didn't they? Do you remember? They, so they, they they used to do the end credits so that rather than going up all the way up, they'd cross over each other, and a lot of the time they'd crash into each other. <laughs> at the end of the program. Yeah, <laughs> I've forgotten that actually. Yeah, you're right. But it it, it is so easy for critics yeah. to make fun and you know, sort of criticise shows that are made on a relative shoestring budget and under very austere conditions, you know. I mean, to learn those scripts in the time that they were given, um, it's it's not like making a movie. So with ATV then, your little sort of uh, foray with ATV and, and, and relationship there, did you ever get a chance to meet Lou Grade? Yes. Yeah? Yes, I did. In fact, Rosie, my wife, one of her best girlfriends who she still sees, Sarah, she was Lord Grade's uh, personal assistant for quite a long time. I can remember Lou's office was in Great Cumberland Place uh, where the Pi recording studios were. So on a couple of occasions, um, we'd pop up to Lord Grade's office just to say hi to Sarah. And on one occasion, Lord Grade came out of his office and we had a delightful, dare I say, a perfunctory conversation. But he, he didn't just say hello, goodbye. He was actually very gracious to me because, of course, I was indirectly making ATV a lot of money at that time with big hits for Pi Records and for ATV Music. So, and providing Crossroads with not the main theme song, that was Tony, but all of the songs that were used in that period of, of, of the 70s. He was a great guy, wasn't he? You know, people look back at him now and think, oh, this big, bumbling guy with a, you know, old-fashioned... But actually, he, his vision for ATV, I mean, they, they had their fingers in so many pies, didn't they? And he was always trying to come up with these big, 
bold things that could be sold around the world. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Lovely pun you just made there, fingers in many pies. <laughs> he, took, he took a punt on the Muppets, didn't he? Yeah, you yeah. Know? And he, he was one of those impresarios, if you like, who, who had the power in those days that no longer exists for one person to say, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to take a risk on that. He lost a lot of money on it two or three big movies can't remember which they were possibly that's why they weren't very successful but he invested in movies and in in artists well michael his his son michael gray of course michael gray was in charge of bbc at the time that howard's way and eastenders came out and and so michael and i met on quite a few occasions actually Lou, basically Lou was good at taking risks wasn't he he liked to take risks he was happy to yeah. you know and so was Michael Gray yeah um, Michael Gray very clever man very clever man and he took BBC into very favourable waters when he yeah. was in charge of it I remember being uh, I mean I'm, I was born in 72 and the EastEnders started in 85 didn't it yeah. I remember the BBC in the early 80s in a way being a a bit in the doldrums, really. A bit secondary to ITV. ITV was way ahead with loads of things, and but you know they had to come up with something new. And Michael obviously brought, brought in EastEnders and Wogan and all the rest of it, and it did really liven things up because I, I think the BBC had lost its way a bit. It got a bit dull for a while, really, and you know he, he helped it to sort of regenerate. Yeah, it, it is all about people, I suppose. When I look back at my career. I would be considered to be primarily a BBC animal. I've written for ITV quite a bit and stuff, yeah. but um, some of my highest profile music was on BBC. So naturally, I, I'm a big fan of BBC and very, very concerned that the government doesn't truncate what I believe is a, is a fabulous organisation. Absolutely. In, in principle, it's a really, really important organisation. I agree. Distinct Nostalgia is produced by MIM, and if you like what we do, then please consider supporting us on Patreon. Every penny helps us to make even more amazing content just for you. Go to distinctnostalgia.com and click on the donate button. Thank you. Distinct Comedy. Fresh and original. Hello, officer. I want to report a robbery. A new series about the secret world of nocturnal security. Yeah, I ordered a Chinese from the Golden Moon and they forgot to send me a can of Coke. A distinct comedy presentation. Well, yeah, I consider it an emergency. I'm gasping here. That idiot on the day shift stolen the last of my flicking tea bags. Barry Pigeon protects. Well, I'm telling you, if you lot don't sort this out, it's going to be like big trouble in little China down here. Follow the exploits of Barry Pigeon, the best night security guard in Chorley, as he discusses everything from his wife... She was too big for Zumba, so she signed up for Bumba. It's like Zumba, only they just sit on their ass and flap their arms around a bit. ...to his favourite food. I love eggs, bloody love them. Poached, scrambled, fried, <laughs> scotched, cream. I love them all! From Andrew Birtwell and Kurt Brooks, starring Roe David McClelland, and guest-starring Royston Mayo and Bruce Jackson. Columbo meets Sherlock, that's me. Barry Pigeon protects. I know what people think about this job, but it's not all sitting on your ass, drinking brews and watching Challenge TV. Uh, I sometimes bring a book as well. Watch now at distinctnostalgia.com. 
so Crossroads was a great sort of, I suppose, launch pad in a way. The kind of yeah, things you yeah. were Crossroads. So what happened then? Where did, what, what happened between Crossroads and EastEnders? We'll be back after a quick break. But you still loading them and heating them up with all your single shit you've been dropping. You feel me? Loading them up on. It, it only takes structure. And, and, you know, just paying attention to the climate of the game. Yeah. Know what I mean? So do do your homies uh got a role in your in your little, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, we all we all artists over here, man. I'm trying to Oh, yeah, I'm trying yeah. I'm trying, oh, yeah. I'm, trying I'm trying to get them on there. Yeah. yeah. Damn, me, me, yo, look, 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 look. We all artists, man. We go you feel me? We going to have this like Bro, me and my man, like me and my man Kai, we be like, I don't know, we play, we play with this <laughs> shit. Right now. With this I gotta lie, we play with this shit right now for real. Oh, don't lie. play with it. Don't play with it. No. Take that shit serious. Okay, in the back room of ATV Music, which had big offices in Mayfair, Bruton Street, actually, in the back office there was a gentleman called Leslie Osborne. At that time that I was enjoying the hits through Crossroads, he was employed as a 75-year-old, actually, to increase the value of ATV Music's copyrights. So, for example, Summer of My Life, he took the song, got it rearranged for a big orchestra, and Radio 2 would play the instrumental version of Summer of My Life, Friday Night is Music Night, for example, or other shows. So my boss at ATV Music said, I'd like you to get along with Leslie and he will help your songs to get a wider profile. And Leslie then, in the course of our relationship, said to me, "Um, listen, old boy, he was that old school kind of person, I know a couple of um, big TV producers and I would like you to introduce you to them with a view to you writing music for their drama series. It had a kind of, um, how can I put it, Ashley, a a slightly um, strange twist to the whole thing because Leslie not only introduced me uh, to these producers, but the kind of deal was that he was actually going to, co-write the music with me and as a young composer you would go with that wouldn't you i won't dwell on that leslie passed away many years ago but let's put it this way without him i wouldn't have got those gigs on television but he didn't even come to the studio when i was writing and arranging the pieces there has been some kind of karma in as much as if you see eastenders now it does say what the truth is, that the music for EastEnders was composed by yours truly. There's a lot of that, isn't there, in this industry? You know, I, I, in my production company, we're 15 years old now. And when we first started, there's a lot of this sort of, you know, I'd had a lot of experience. I knew what I was doing and all the rest of it. But you felt as though you had to cotton on to another company in order to... Yeah. Because you're not being... You're not trusted. And, you know, it's really quite irritating, actually. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I went along with it. Uh, I think partly because my late father taught me at a very young age a a business principle that it's better to earn 50% of a lot than 100% of nothing. Anyway, so Leslie introduced me to Jerry Glaster, who at that time was producing a drama series with Michael Dennison called Scorpion. And by the way, I'm in my studio, actually. (laughs) 
haven't played that for a few years. But do you remember that tune? And that was the main theme of Scorpion. Did really well. And Jerry then went on to produce another series called Cold Warrior. Which was another detective series. They're all coming back to me now. We're all coming back. I can hear them all. <laughs> See, one of, the, one of the things that I'm blessed with is that because I was brought up on Mozart when I was at Dauncey School in Wiltshire, I was very lucky because I was a tenor and I sung the lead parts in Mozart's operas like um, Marriage of Figaro, Cosi Fantuti. And Mozart, in my mind, is, was, and will be the best melodic composer of all time. And so by singing Mozart operas, I took from Mozart the subliminal desire to write very melodic themes. And it's it, it's great that you can remember from 30 or so years ago, I'm playing a theme that was very melodic and therefore memorable. Uh, and so Tony Holland was the script editor on... Cold Warrior. Cold Warrior. Scorpion. We knew each other professionally, met a few times, and he said, Simon, Julia Smith and I are developing a new soap opera for BBC, and I'd love you to meet Julia, come to the office, and maybe you'd be interested in writing the theme for our new show, which was called, at the time, East Eight. So I met Julia uh, and Tony. I went into their office. I could see photographs of all the cast, the set of Albert Square to be, uh, and we had a delightful hours meeting. And they said, well, off you go. Write us a theme for this new edgy soap that we're going to be making. I went home very excited, and the word edgy was ringing in my ears. So I wrote a theme. I can't remember it. I've gone into complete uh, amnesia about it all, actually. And I went back about three or four days later and I played them through Walkman ears and I could see they were listening to my suggested theme for, uh, for East 8. And I could see on their faces that there was a kind of glazed look in their eyes. And I thought, oh my God, I, I don't think I've got this right. They took the cans off their ears and Julie looked at me and said, Simon, that is so the opposite of what we want. And I said, Julia, that's that's really good news because if it's the opposite of what you want, I'll do the opposite of what I've just done. <laughs> so she said, Yeah, you do that. I want I want a she said, I want a feel-good theme to contrast with the show. I want a theme that brings people in from the garden and from the kitchen so that when they hear the theme, they're gonna instantly know it's EastEnders. That's what I want. So I went back to when I was seven years old my first piano lesson and I can remember um, I fell in love with my first piano teacher she was 21 a, a young fabulous lady uh, she was called Anne Lake she's now Anne Alderman because she got married after that but in a totally appropriate way I fell in love with her you know what I mean it was just this yeah. kind of schoolboy crush but what it did is it made me want to do really well on the piano so the first lesson we had when I was seven 
was playing the scale of C major. And I kept playing it. Making mistakes. And eventually getting it right. And that was when I was seven. And all those years later, And you can see that the tune of EastEnders went up the scale. The first one, two, three, four, five, six notes were the scale of C major. It's what you did after that there that sort of made it different. And then I thought, what am I going to do for Julia and Tony that makes this song uh, encapsulate the East End of London. Uh, I've got one of my best mates from years of, of, you know, many, many, many years, a guy called Steve, um, who actually, funny enough, is the lead singer of the Counterfeit Stones now. But Steve and I were really good mates, and he, he's a typical um, warm Cockney guy. And I thought, what sums up Steve as a Cockney person? And I thought, it's that warmth that sense of humour, <clears throat> it's, if you're going down the street in the East End of London, you'll see a builder or a secretary or whoever who's a real cockney, and what do they do? They whistle. So therefore, at the end of the theme, I, I put the melody, that hook, on a whistle. And when Julie and Tony had their Walkmans on, over their ears, and they were listening to my second version of EastEnders. I knew I'd cracked it because when it got to the end and the Cockney whistle took that final hook. <laughs> Julia burst into a massive smile, looked at me. She, she gave me a virtual hug and, and so did Tony. And, and they said, that's just what we want. Fabulous. It's got... Lots of, I mean, that you mentioned those beginning words. We've got lots of different elements to it, hasn't it? Because if you, like all themes, if you listen to the full theme, there's a lot more to it than the bit that we hear. Yes, isn't it, basically. Yes. So, I mean, are you are you always conscious when you're writing a theme tune that there will be a certain bit that will be regularly used, and that's the bit that they're going to focus in on? Or, I mean, with EastEnders, they've used they use different bits, don't they, for different things? But you know, what what was, you know, did you know that? It was always going to be that that core bit that was going to be. Is that what they honed in on the bit at the beginning? Basically, is that the main thing? Uh, well, of course, the opening titles in the sem in in the eighties eighty five didn't have the, the what we call the doof doof the tomfo. It, it it just started off with the which is very very primary, um, very. Well, you couldn't get more primary than that. It's like you're painting a picture and you don't use subtle colours. You just make it red, blue, all the bright colours. And and that tune, I haven't really answered your question, actually, because, you know, you're, you're probably the first person interviewing me ever that's made me ask myself the question, do I think about it? And the answer is no. I, 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 I just... It's instinctive. Well, ish, I mean, 
the thing is, by the way, um, the opening chapter of my autobiography, which I, I, I must plug for one second, which is called Duff Duff, My Life in Music, but it's related to our conversation, so I'm not just plugging gratuitously. Yeah, but in, in my opening chapter, I talk about, as a very young boy, my father had a furniture firm and a removal firm, and very close to our home was the furniture store's um, storage building, massive building, uh, about five stories high. And in that building, there was always about seven or eight, nine pianos that were being stored in between house moves. And on a Saturday morning, my father would let me have the key to the storeroom. And I'd go up into that dark building and go around the storeroom, opening the lids of all of these pianos and playing different pianos. And, you know, some of them were out of tune. So... So I'll be doing all that stuff, playing different pianos. So going back to your comment that I used my instinct, I think instinct is something that you acquire through training. In other words, if you look at um, a skilled policeman who has massively quick reactions to a dangerous situation, and that policeman instinctively, as it were, does the right thing. Well, that instinct is the result of years of training. So I'm a bit wary of saying instinct. If I had been Robinson Crusoe on an island without a piano, um, I don't think I could have just gone in and instinctively written a piece of music that worked. It, it, it's all of those years. I mean, I, I guess that to describe myself yeah i would say passionate some people would say worse than passionate almost like so focused on music and 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 being uh what's the word i'm looking for actually so sort of ah passionate uh, yeah the, uh, passionate's a kind word I, yeah. some people would say yeah. sorry Obsessive. Thank you. That is exactly the word I'm looking for. I, I, I am obsessed with getting something right. Yeah. I, I, but that obsession has upsides and downsides. The downsides are that when I'm talking to a friend or doing something in a social situation and I sort of seem to... Um, not be totally focused on the conversation or doing what I'm meant to be doing. It's because chords and tunes are whizzing around my head and I can't let go. Uh, so that's a big downside. Gets me into a lot of trouble sometimes, uh, socially. But yeah, well, the I can stand that. But the upside, the upside is that um, I don't stop till I'm absolutely happy with what I think I've got. And, and Although the EastEnders theme took a very short time to actually write, working with my team of uh, Ian Hughes, who helped me, and Dave Hewson, and loads of other talented, Simon Lockyer, um, very talented musicians, it, it, it took a long time to get it to perfection. I'm, I'm working on a project for EMI at the moment, and uh, Ben, who I'm working with, must be going around the bend because 
when I think I've ruled off what we've agreed about a particular piece that we're doing, I then sort of two o'clock in the morning, I'm writing notes by my bedside and poor old Ben's getting an email the next day saying, actually, don't forget that at bar five, third beat, we actually need to be doing whatever. And and that obsession sometimes is unnecessary. And in fact, I, I, I take great comfort in the fact that when when I'm writing and arranging some music, there's a two-way street on this one, actually, because on the one hand, the good news is that when I do get something slightly wrong, a slight clash of chords or a slight wrong velocity on a particular note, or a trill that's not absolutely how somebody else might have played it. All of those minutiae mistakes go straight over the head of the listener. And if I said to them, did you notice that little mistake? They say, what mistake? I mean, my wife, Rosie, is a very good musician, you know, listener, very skilled at, at appreciating and evaluating. And I said, what do you think of that? She said, I, I don't know what you're talking about. It sounds fine to me. That's the good news. The bad news is, however, that when I do something which is sophisticated and really works, it goes over people's heads. So it's not appreciated. So can you see what I mean? It's- I get the issue with edit- the editing side of things when we're editing radio documentaries because I can be, I'm very precise. It really matters to me that the edit is right and all the rest of it. And I'll mention to my partner and he'll say, I've no idea what on earth you're talking about. It sounds fine. You know what I mean? It's like, and, and you're right. Sometimes you can, you'll, You'll do something really special, yeah. and they don't notice it at all. So it's, yeah. I, mean, I mean, that wonderful song, I think Sammy Khan wrote the lyrics to it, and it's got a lovely line in it when the lyric goes from major to minor. And the music accompanying it goes from a major chord to a minor chord. From major to minor. And... Obviously, as musicians, I'm sure if you're hearing that song, you think, yeah, that's clever. But I wonder, out of 100 people listening, I wonder how many people think that's clever. It's going from a major chord to a minor chord that really matches um, yeah. the, the music. With, with the EastEnders, though, the, the, there's, obviously there's the main theme, but there are, you know, if you listen to the longer version of the theme, there's a lots of nice sort of meanderings and melodic bits and you know, and obviously bits of that have been used for, you know, there's Julia's theme and all those different things. Tell us a bit about that, because the EastEnders theme has become a bit of a, it's, it's evolved, doesn't it, over the years? How, how did that happen? Because I'm a commercial writer, and I, I say that not self-deprecatingly, but as a fact. So when I write a TV theme, it's always a nice thought to know that it's going to have a life after the TV programme. So, for example, it could it could create it could generate a hit record, and a lot of my themes have created like anyone can fall in love from EastEnders is is a classic example. So, when I'm writing a theme for a program, I'm thinking that could be the A side. That's really working. Uh, we're going to need a B side. And why not, therefore, write a reflective version of EastEnders? And why not call it Julia's theme as a tribute and compliment to my lovely executive producer, who gave me two chances, which doesn't happen nowadays. And um, so, therefore, 
the reflective version of EastEnders, which was written at the same time as the main theme, in the same two or three months parameter. And it also had the advantage that we had to hire a big string section to play the main A theme. So why not use the musicians effectively? And they can play on the romantic version as well. So all sorts of commercial reasons for doing it. I didn't actually realise at the time that Julia's theme and all the variations that I've been asked to create since then by all the different executive producers of EastEnders, you know, like Peggy's theme, Barbara Windsor's theme, that was a variation of the Julia's theme. But I never realised that it would be used so effectively in what is really an edgy, hard-hitting soap. A producer and director who actually are not scared of using a very... Um, I call it reflective, but you could say sentimental piece of music in an edgy program. They don't do it very often, but when they do, my God, it works because it's such a contrast to the rest of the show. If you go, if you speak to an EastEnders fan, a real buff, they will be able to tell you all of the times that Julia's theme has been used. I'd have to look it up in Wikipedia. But we're, we're talking about not just a handful of times, but it has been used over the years, loads of times. Potentially with a, with a particularly iconic character that's leaving or whatever it may be. Usually in a taxi. <laughs> yeah, usually in a taxi. I spoke to Charlie Hawkins, who played Darren Miller for seven years, and he he, he grew up in EastEnders. He started in it when he was 12. And, and we were talking about him leaving, and he, he was saying, I don't think I got a Julia's theme. I'm sure. I don't know. <laughs> well, it, it's interesting because there was quite a furore at the time when Wendy Richards left the show. Uh, sadly, she's she's passed away since, of course, very sadly. But in her last episode, which was a very poignant exit, Julia's theme was not used, and. I know that the front office got a lot of flack from fans who who wrote in to complain and say, why didn't Wendy Richards get Julia's team of all the actors who deserves a big send-off? Because the, 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 that theme, it, it's it's the send-off. And in, in a sort of unexpected way for me, Ashley, uh, it, it has become almost like a tribute. So when an actor gets that theme as they leave, whether they're walking out or in a taxi or whatever, they're well unhappy if, if, if when they see the final edited show, they haven't got the theme taking them out. So where did the Duff Duffs come from then? Do you know what? We've, we've been talking for a lovely while. I was hoping and praying that you were going to be the first interviewer not to ask me that question. Oh, oh dear. I had to ask that question. Yeah, you did. But, do you know what I, I've I've sort of kind of tailored the the story to it so many times that it, I'm I'm not sure what the truth of the matter is. Do you really want me to go through chapter and verse? I, have... I presume it's evolved in some way. Hey, it's in the book. It's in Doof Doof My Life and Music. <laughs> in in my story, I, I've told in great detail how the the Doof Doof was actually a, um, an accident, 
yeah. it was not intended. But I will give you a clue, actually. I'm being very unfair to you, actually, because you, you're interviewing me very graciously. But of the, the Duff Duff came about because in the commercial three-and-a-half-minute version that I was creating before I chopped it down to the shorter theme version for television, I had a Cockney section in the middle that was kind of, you know, sort of... Uh, And to come out of that Cockney feel, you had to change the feel of it to get back to the more contemporary feel of EastEnders as we know it on television. And the best way to merge the two different styles together is to have a distraction. And the drum fill, the tom fill that Graham played for me at my request was a distraction that got in between the two styles. And it, it's basically the EastEnders theme played on drums. Dum, 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 dum. So that then, when it was mixed without the music, was a natural thing for Julie and Tony to take into the end titles. But it wasn't intended. It was only when they came in the studio and they, they heard the toms on the, the, the doof doof, the lindrum on its own. They say, hey, son, that's great. That's, that, so is that the start of the end of the episode and i thought uh, oh yeah yeah it is <laughs> unthought of best you're a creative person actually i'm sure you'll agree that some of the best things that have ever happened in the world of movies television books are they've been mistakes that yes. the, the person who's creating that mistake suddenly realizes oh my god that's good because it's a mistake is something outside of the box. Therefore, by definition, it's going to be original. This is Distinct Nostalgia by MIM, the home of a regular quiz testing your TV and film knowledge. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of Star Trek, so can you ask me some questions on that, please? I absolutely loved Pit Play. Was that presented by Susan Strength? I'd like to have some questions about Coronation Street in the 90s. How would you like to be crowned Distinct Nostalgia Mind of the Month and win a Distinct Nostalgia mug in the process? If you think you could answer random questions on both a chosen subject and if you get to the final TV and film general knowledge, then drop us a message now on the contact page of the Distinct Nostalgia website, distinctnostalgia.com. Distinct Drama. Fresh and original. Mr. Fenn, I assure you that I have not come here to murder you. However tempted I may be. A terse 40-minute drama set in a U.S. correctional facility. Oh, I see. You wish to be sent to the electric chair. Yeah. Oh, oh, no, 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 Mr. Fenn. That would not do at all. Starring the award-winning Joe Sims. In short, Mr. Fenn, you are what may be regarded as disposable humanity... Don't you dare think that I started all of this out of political ambition. Yes, sir. Yes, Mr. Daniels, I do think that. And to show you that there is such a thing as redemption. To show you that you are educable and have potential. Show me? Show me, Mr. Daniels? I think you're done showing me my potential. As we forgive them. Available now. To place yourself in the center of a dream doesn't make it a bad one. And this dream, my dream, 
in whatever depths of despair it may have been born, has become the star of something real. Listen at distinctnostalgia.com or search for Distinct Drama wherever you get your podcasts. When EastEnders was at its original height in the sort of 85 up to 1990 kind of thing, the theme tune obviously had become such an iconic thing. Everyone, you know, loved it. It was that appointment of view, like most theme tunes are. You know, you hear it, you go and listen to it. But it then ended up turning into other things, didn't it? You mentioned Anyone Can Fall In Love. And was it Don Black that did the lyrics to that? Yeah, yeah my dear friend Don Black. Um... And- I mean, it, it works, doesn't it? Anyone can fall in, you know, but I mean, did you know that that was going to work? I mean, it was sort of... Well, um, the funny thing about the EastEnders theme is it is not actually a natural pop song. And that's that melody that you've just replicated. That doesn't sort of scream out as a, as a pop lyric. And that's why Don Black was very clever, because going back to what we were saying earlier, how many people who've heard anyone can fall in love how many people have thought that is a really clever lyric because anyone can fall in love but hey that's easy but staying in love my wife and I have been married 40 years or so but that's not an easy thing to achieve a lot of lot of factors and luck and things play a part in that so easy to fall in love so what saves I think the song from being bland is that the lyric is actually quite original. I wish I'd written it myself because I do write lyrics, but um, I wanted Don to write these lyrics because he'd just written the lyrics to Howard's Way, Always There, and that is a pop song. Now, what you did in Crossroads with the the, the pop music side of things, getting the songs in Crossroads, you also did, of course, with EastEnders, didn't you, with with Nick Berry and Every Loser Wins? Yes. Yeah. What, what was that? Was that? Did that come from the idea of what had happened in Crossroads? I mean, how did the EastEnders people did, did they were they were they all up for that? What was the deal with that one? Um, we were probably one of the last creative people, songwriters, um, to get away with plugging a hit record on a BBC drama series by bringing it into the story in the way that it happened with Crossroads. Tony Holland, bless his heart, never forgave me for hijacking the programme to create a number one hit record. <laughs> I mean, it started off in all innocence where Tony and Julia got in touch and said, we actually got a, quite an interesting storyline for the summer because it's it's the slack period when viewing figures aren't particularly high, kids are on holiday, so we want a young storyline. So we're just going to bring in some, we're going to, get some of the cast to form a little pop band. Just, you know, not a big deal. And please, Simon, don't plug it as a pop song, but just do something that works as background music. And they said, but also um, we've got a lovely storyline for Lofty, who has fallen in love with Michelle and has a very unhappy sort of sequel to falling in love with it. In other words, she turns him down. So Lofty is a loser. So can you also write a song that we might get Wixie, Simon Wicks, to sing it in the pub or play it on the pub? And um, can you give us a song that um, 
reflects the fact that he's a loser. Well, two or three months prior to that, I'd had the unhappy experience of being in the Grosvenor House Hotel. This is in Duft of the book as well, by the way. I expand it. I expand it more in the book, but just to give you a feel of it. I promise you that's the last plug for my book. Um, The the whole um, business of going to the hotel was that EastEnders had been nominated as the TV theme of the year. Uh, for the Ivan Novello Awards. And Rosie and I had gone to the hotel with our publisher uh, at ATV Music and we'd gone through the lunch and then the awards were announced. And the envelope, you know, it's like the Oscars, the envelope was opened and it said, and for the best TV theme of the year, 1985, the winner is, and our publishers had foolishly ordered champagne on the table, getting ready to uncork the bottles. Very foolish. It's called hubris. And uh, just as the envelope was open, I heard this voice saying, and the winner is Edge of Darkness by Eric Clapton. Oh, my God. And I have to smile over at Eric Clapton and wave to him and put on, the, you know, that cheesy smile. Hey, well done. I'm so happy for you. <laughs> and... Uh, so that was two or three months prior to that. So I was well equipped to know what it's like to lose. So when they said Lofty's a loser, can you write a song? I thought, yeah, we can write a song about Lofty being a loser, but let's let's make it a bit more feel good. And so when I was with Stuart and Bradley, who were co-writing this song with me, I said, tell you what the title of this song is. Let's turn it around. Every loser wins. <laughs> hook writes itself that's and that every loser wins uh was therefore what wixie played in the pub we nearly made it we nearly found the perfect combination i got away with murder in those days it would never happen again not on BBC. That's why Simon Cowell works for ITV, because he can still plug commercial records on ITV. He couldn't do that on BBC. Not in the same way. Nick Berry was a singer, yeah. I mean, we coached him and we did a few drop-ins and a few very speeds and all those things, but um, he sung it really well. And that song wasn't just Wixie playing on the piano. It was used as incidental music. And that was where my experience of crossroads came into play because i was winding tony up and said come on tony you could, you surely must have a scene where the record's being played that reflects Lo- lofty walking along thinking reflectively about life in general and this song is pumping away in the background and it was used in eastenders prime time and it zoomed straight up to number one sold a million records and here's the payoff, actually. Uh, my other side of my life is teaching, and, and I still teach kids now, uh, albeit one or two days a week, but I, I teach Asperger's kids, actually. And um, when I'm trying to cheer them up, I tell them this story, and I say, you know, out of a losing situation, you can actually create victory. And 
A few months later, Rosie and I were back at that same hotel. I swear it was the same table. And I was receiving with my team the Ivan Novello Award for the best selling single of the United Kingdom of that year, 86. I thought Every Loser Wins was a great song. Really good Thank song. you. Um, so, EastEnders, obviously, when everybody thinks of you, they think EastEnders. But obviously, there are other, lots of other things. And one of the other things, of course, was, was a, an equally, at the time, successful programme, which was Howard's Way. Yeah. Um, beautifully done. You know, your the music just fits the credits, you know, the, the opening titles really, really well. Was that... Did Howard's Way come after EastEnders? I can't remember now. It was in the same year. Virtually simultaneous, which is why initially I wanted Marty Webb to sing a vocal version of Howard's Way. Don Black was managing Marty Webb and also was and is probably the best lyricist in this country of his generation. So it made sense to get in touch with Don, who I knew, and said, Don, I'd, I'd like you to write the lyrics to... Howard's Way, always there, which he did. And then I said, well, oh, two for the price of one. You might as well do EastEnders as well. But obviously Howard's Way, a very different programme. Yes. Different demographic, you know, yes. very middle class, all the rest of it. You know, did you, I mean, just tell us a little bit about coming up with Howard's Way. How did you go about sort of the Howard's Way thing? Well, Jerry Glaster, who I'd worked for for two previous series that I mentioned, the Michael Dennison ones, at the same time as you know, I, I was at that time because of what was happening with EastEnders. I was temporarily the golden boy of the week, if you like. So Jerry phoned me up and said, I've got a new program, big series I'm working on. Jerry was great because he thought ahead. So I had plenty of time to think about and work on the theme for his new program, which wasn't actually called How's Way. It, it was. Um, its working title was Boat Boobers. So Jerry said, off you go, write me a theme that uh, is all about sailing boats. Um, and it was in the Thatcher years of uh, people living like Dallas, like life. Your people would come, didn't they? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So um, we were talking earlier about instinct and when I was just writing it, I guess subliminally, the sea must have, and, and the waves were sort of rushing around my head. I, I, I'd spent many, many happy years as a child in North Devon on summer holidays. So being close to the sea was a second nature to me. And it was kind of the only point at which I manufactured the sea was by bringing waves and seagulls in in the introduction so that was a was more than subliminal that was actually telling the listener this is about the sea but even without those waves and we even without the seagulls i think that the tune has got a feeling about the sea you can almost smell the, the, the sea air can't you when you're doing it 
don't know how it happened. We're going back to instinct again, aren't we? But instinct is a bit like Gary Player. We all know the story about this famous golfer who was asked, he seems to get luckier and luckier. And he said, yeah, the more I practice, the luckier I get. And that's my redefinition of instinct. I think because I've I've been working um, with music for so many years, um, when I was a teacher in my very young years, in the 20s, my 20s, um, <laughs> wasn't that long ago, I used to play in pubs to um, get some extra pocket money. And in those pubs, the regulars would ask me to play this, that and everything. So I, I, I had a very wide repertoire of music that I've been playing. Uh, just rather like Gary Barlow, I'm not comparing myself at the same high level as Gary. I'd like to, but um, Gary Barlow served his apprenticeship playing keyboards at holiday camps, and he played all the big hits. So if he could play other people's hits, it was easier for him to play his own. So that's a rather long-winded way of me saying that uh, writing Howard's Way was like, it's what it is. And when I wrote it, I got my goose pimples, goose pimples, and um, realised that I had written something, uh, I think, a, a little bit special. It's lovely, lovely. It's again another one of those um, iconic themes that she, you know. It's, I mean, I wasn't. It's bizarre, isn't it? The bizarre thing about theme tunes for me is um, EastEnders aside, because I love EastEnders. Um, I love the theme tune, but there are quite a lot of programs I have to tell you that where I love the theme tune and I hate the programs. Was El Dorado? <laughs> was El Dorado one of them? No, actually, El Dorado. I thought was quite good. I thought it was really good. Yeah. Tell us about tell us about El Dorado then, because there's a bit of similarity with El Dorado and. Howard's Way a little bit, isn't it? If I remember right, it, go, it goes up the scale. I mean, EastEnders goes, uh, El Dorado goes. So, going up the scale, uh, you can't do it too often. Uh, but, but yeah. about El Dorado was that it was a song before it came became a TV theme. That is a song that I wrote for a musical years before Juliet and Tony asked me to write El Dorado. And the song had a And when you go away I want to hear you say I'm coming to Then I won't mind when you go away Ironically, of course, that lyric the verse was, it was over before it had begun, was the opening line of the lyric. How ironic life can be. But when you go away, you gotta tell me where you're going to. So going, going back to what we said at the beginning about El Dorado and how if they'd, kept, if they'd given it a bit of a chance, it would have, like a lot of programmes to be fair, there's loads of comedies that have started off fairly low in terms of ratings and then have, have you know, done really well later on. And as you say, if they if they carried on and give it had a bit of faith in El Dorado, it probably would have succeeded quite well. Because like you think about it today now, yeah. very interesting, wouldn't it? Because of all the stuff with Brexit and God knows yeah. what. 
You'd be oh. following these people in that particular part of the world. It'd be really interesting. I, I won't name him by name, but the controller of BBC One, who, who was responsible for losing El Dorado, for, you know, cutting it out of the schedules. I think that a lot of controllers who come into a new situation like to put their mark on a situation. And his mark was, okay, well, let's get rid of the stuff. Yes, it was getting criticised. Yes, it was suffering from early developmental problems. But if you decide to give a programme or a person a second chance, like happened for me with EastEnders, if I hadn't been given a second chance, EastEnders theme wouldn't have been written. It was another. It was another creation of Julius Smith and Tony Holland. Wasn't yes, it, it was. It yeah. was their follow up. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I still love the El Dorado theme. It's what is for me. It's my fav- one of my favourite pieces of music. Uh, and it it came from a, a very special project that I was writing at the time. Sadly, the musical never happened, but the the tune did. And the reason that El Dorado works is because the opening section. That's the verse. And then when you get to the hook, that's the chorus. So it is a pop song turned into a TV theme. And when I'm teaching my kids at school, I sometimes bore them with the story of El Dryde. And I say to them, look, one thing you've got to be in life is honest. Because, well, I've always tried to be honest because I'm not clever enough to be dishonest. And when I played the theme to Julia and Verity Lambert, who was also the executive producer, I said to them both, I've adapted something that that I've made it work for El Dorado. I've put Spanish guitars on, blah, 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 blah. But it was actually a song that I wrote from a musical. And um, I just want to share that with you, that you know that it's something that I've always loved and I wanted to recreate for your programme. And they said, no, that's fine. Thanks for being transparent. That's no problem. And funnily enough, I can't remember who it was, but somebody then wrote to Julia Smith or even phoned her, I think, managed to get her on the phone after El Dorado had come out. And they said, do you know what? That El Dorado theme, Simon May wrote that in a musical about three or four years ago. And Julia said, Yes, I know. Simon told me. And I tell that story to some of my kids and say, you know, if, if I had lied and not told them that and that phone call had come through, Julia might have been a bit upset. She wasn't upset at all. She was just rather pleased to be able to say to this snooping telltale, yeah, I know, Simon told me, so what's your problem? <laughs> <laughs> Take 23. Distinct Comedy presents... Oh, hello. I'm uh, I'm Jolien Karp. I'm, uh, I'm doing a voiceover. Oh, hello. Experience a day in the life of voiceover guy. Take 13. I'm playing a pirate. Are you sure you're in the right place? Written and performed by Jonathan Kidd. Take 24. Aha! Splice the main brace, me hearties. Get on down to Captain Jacob's boat supplies. Sail is now on. 
get it? Oh, good. Let's treat that one as a run-through. Aha! Available now on the Distinct Comedy Podcast. Okay, then. Can we do a series of less piratical wild ahas in threes and we'll splice them on? That okay, Paul? The trials and tribulations of a life spent in voiceover. Sorry, I only have two lemon with honey. I'd like my coffee. I shall scream without a coffee. New and original comedy. Softer. Aha! Well, actually, on reflection, I'm not happy with them. I like what we had, all rough and piratey. Listen on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or I might have to give you a black spot. That was blood out of a stone. Won't use him again. Eh. Drama. Fresh and original. We're not here to cause damage. We just want a hearing to be heard like any citizen of this country. Distinct Drama presents Sylvia. Men working in the same factory have time for lunch simply because they are men. Written by Leslie Strachan and directed by Colin Guthrie. You have no voice here. Only the father has the right to ask. Distinct Drama presents a powerful exploration of the relationship between the Pankhurst sisters. We will not bargain for the vote. Burn, maybe. Not bargain. A Leslie Strachan production. Your hunger strikes are not for nothing. We will not be eclipsed by who my sister is sleeping with. Available to listen now. Search for Distinct Drama wherever you get your podcasts or go to distinctnostalgia.com. Christabel is losing the membership. The militancy surrounds us. The government is running scared. That is the opportunity. How can you be so blind? So when you look back at, um, obviously, EastEnders and the EastEnders theme, was that a... Because you've done all sorts of other things, and people should buy your book, of course, and and, and read all about it. But, Thank but you. What, <laughs> where does the where does EastEnders sit? You have that crossroads moment, etc. Yeah. You know, where does EastEnders sit when you look back at your career? Okay, so my career, childhood, Dauncey School, choral scholarship to Cambridge, teaching at Kingston Grammar School. Songwriting contract with ATV Music, the hits on Crossroad and other hits as well, and then we get to EastEnders, the 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 first really successful TV theme I'd written, followed by Howard's Way at the same time and other TV themes that that I have written. So, in a sense, EastEnders was the fourth stage of a career that I've been. I've had some incredible luck. Uh, I'd be the first to admit that. But you have to know when you've got a lucky situation. Sometimes, you know, you have to buy all the lottery tickets. Was it a turning point for you, do you think? Or was it Crossroads that was more of a turning point? Well, it was yet another wave. You know, I'd had a big hit as a singer some of my life. I'd, I'd had the excitement personally of being on top of the pops a couple of times, two or three times. That's that's the YouTube um, clips that you very kindly mentioned earlier on. Uh, <laughs> and so being on top of the pops was, for me, one of the greatest achievements for me personally. So therefore, EastEnders was, yeah, it, it, it was raising the bar. It was more than the icing on the cake. It, it got me um into the common how can i put it got me it, it got me more recognition and by bringing out an autobiography and by promoting it on radio and and chat shows and things um it does mean that more people know 
who I am. And that's, I hope it's not an ego trip or anything. It's just part of my job that I, in order to get more work, I have to have a brand. And in order to have a brand, you have to promote it like Richard Branson does all the time. And Simon May is a brand. And if somebody, yeah, if somebody phones me up and says, uh, I'd like you to write a piece of music that sounds like Hans Zimmer, you know what I ask them to do? Phone Hans Zimmer. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but if if you want a, a piece of music that sounds like Simon May, you've come to the right place. And my late dear mother, she was great because she always knew whether whether a DJ mentioned my name or not. She always knew when a piece of my music was on radio. She'd phone me up and says, "I've just heard a piece of your music." I said, "Really?" And and I'd check the cue sheets. I'd say, "You're right." <laughs> and I'd say, "Gosh." And it's not a very well-known piece of mine, but you you recognised it. And just like you got Mozart, right? That is Mozart. And hopefully, bringing in a tribute to the end. That's a bit of Simon May. We all have our we all have our trademarks. Yeah, it's like, it's like John, John Barry. You know a John Barry truth. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 So I mean, the thing and the thing is, you know, that these theme tunes, Eric Spears, Coronation Street, you know, Tony Hatch with Emmerdale and Crossroads, you with EastEnders, you know, they they are as important to those shows as the characters and the actors and the storylines are in many ways. They're very much part of the of the programs. I remember when Crossroads changed its theme tune right towards the end of its first run and it was horrible i didn't watch it at the time because i thought i can't watch it because it's not the same thing to you and and do you know what um i i do dip into home and away and neighbors but the current version of neighbors that's used at the moment it's like the producers have said to an arranger can you recreate neighbors and use the most least obvious chord sequence that you'd least expect, and they sure as heck have done that. But the chords, the chord sequence to Neighbours at the moment is dreadful. Well, I was disappointed recently when they, they brought back Van der Volk on ITV. Yes. And they, 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 they came up with a, a completely different theme tune. I mean, you could tell it was Van der Volk because there was, the, you know, the Amsterdam and all the rest of it. It's a completely different programme. But the only nod that they had to... The original Vanderbilt was a, a a few bars of yes. you know which, which came. I just thought you know I know they can't bring back the cast because most of them have gone and all the rest of it. But actually, you know what? For the audience that remember it, they'd probably more likely to stay with the new one if they if they'd use the same theme tune. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely right. And I thought my wife and I discussed that in exactly the way you're talking about it because what happened um, with making the new Vandervelt, the producer obviously thought about using the original theme, but then, hey, we were talking about hubris earlier on, maybe so anxious to put his or her stamp on the show that they didn't want to rely on something that would have actually helped to make it more successful. It so happens there was a bit of karma there, because if I had been Simon Park, and my main theme hadn't been used from Vanderbilt, 
I'd have been well unhappy. But he would have, dear Simon would have had the last laugh because the the program itself I thought was pretty average. Yeah, no, I agree, and Absolutely. I don't think it would come back. And and yeah, it's it's like people who want to put their stamp on their creation. That's okay, but not to the point where it's detrimental to the TV station or to the program that's being made. I, th- I think you and I are on the same wavelength. Aren't we? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And just before, because um, we're nearing we're nearing the end, but um, tell us a bit about some of those other things that you did, which we won't ne- most people won't necessarily know of, because there were there were things that you did, other shows and things that you did after EastEnders and Howard's Way that people won't necessarily know. You know, your mum knew them because she recognised recognised your your style. But tell us a bit about some of those if you can. Well. It's funny because when you when you uh, asked me the question about EastEnders, what was that stage of my career? Hopefully, that won't when my whole career is done and dusted, and other people are reviewing my career. Hopefully, and they'll say, "Well, EastEnders was the peak of Simon's career." That might sadly be the case, but I'm very committed still to writing new music. In fact, I'm doing a project um, for EMI that I'm, I'm really excited about for, for their music library. Um, so when people ask me that stock question, um, what's your favourite piece of music that you've ever written? My stock answer is I haven't written it yet. In other words, um, I, I, I move on. And to answer your question, I'm, I'm still developing and have done for quite a very, very long time. A musical, um, it's called Rick. It's based on the legend of Rip Van Winkle. And unlike Smite, which goes back 100 years, Rip Van Winkle goes forward 100 years. So it's a mirror image of Rip. And and there are some fabulous songs in it. And I would so, so love to find the right home, the right theatre that would uh, take the musical on board for another showcase that proves to the powers that be that the show has got legs. It, it's it's a it's a lovely story. I, I've written some great songs for it. It's still more work to do, but that is my um, that is yeah my passion, my obsession at the moment. Um, and I don't know. I haven't got that five million in the bank that I can just say, well, I'm going to take a risk. If we won the lottery, I would persuade my wife to put half of the winnings into developing the show because I, I know it could be a big big hit musical um but it th- there are, uh, as you get a little bit older actually i think you you learn to be accepting and if eastenders did turn out to be and how it's way the peak of my career well i'm lucky that i had that peak but it gets me out of bed every morning to know that still everything is possible. And who knows, I might be giving a tutorial at at a film school in a couple of months' time, and there's a young student there who makes amazing cartoon animation films. And you might say, Simon, can I I turn Rick into an animation film? Uh, And I might say yes. And because I still dream, and because I still visualise that everything is possible, it makes it slightly more likely that it will. Were there other themes that you composed around that time or after EastEnders and Howard's Way 
that people don't necessarily remember or know about that are worth mentioning? That's one thing. Yeah. Oh my gosh, you've. I'm going to have to break a promise because um, I said I wouldn't mention my autobiography again, but <laughs> BBC Records have brought out an autobiographical collection, a three CD collection, and it's got all my favourite uh, compositions on it. And there's one piece on it. And so I am answering your question, not plugging my book. Well, I'm doing two things at the same time. Um, but in that collection, there's there's a song called Wolfgang. And I wrote it many years ago when I was in Austria. And I was on my own, actually, at the time. Um, Rosie and I have an arrangement that we sometimes have the chance to do our own thing. And I wanted to go to visit Mozart's birthplace. And she went off, played golf with girlfriends and stuff. And that's how it was. So I went to Salzburg and I went up into Mozart's birthplace and touched the piano that he originally played. And that was, for me, a very spiritual situation. So when I got back to England, I wrote a song called Wolfgang, which is basically me talking to Amadeus Wolfgang Mozart, telling him that in a kind of way he should have lived in my era of time when we've got the Performing Rights Society and we get paid for what we do. Um, but there's lines in it, you know, a father took you in the fast lane. Um, and it's autobiographical about Mozart's life. And it's got interspersed all of Mozart's favourite melodies that he wrote. And Wolfgang, it, it, funny enough, some it, it gets played on German radio but nobody's really picked up on it in England, but it is one of my favourite, most unknown pieces of music that I've ever written. And maybe it's just something to share with people who just happen to discover it. Hopefully everyone will be looking it up as we speak now. (laughs) (laughs) what, so, where do you think? Just a final question: Where do you think the theme tune is now in in television? Because it strikes me that we've all grown up with these themes, and you know, everyone remembers particular theme tunes and with affection and all the rest of it. But it strikes me that the TV industry doesn't really respect them anymore because all you get is. The credits being talked all over. You don't even see. You can't even see the credits. The credits are shoved into one corner. So there's no respect for the, you know, the the actors, the directors, the producers, the researchers, or whatever. And then the theme is reduced to nothing. You know, there was a one. There was one that was done for what was it Mr. Selfridge, which I thought it was a fantastic theme tune. It had a lovely middle eight in it, and I really liked hearing it. And I enjoyed it at the beginning. And when it came to the end, I always wanted to listen listen to it in full. But you never got a chance to hear it in full because they just talk all over it. You know, have we, have we, have they sort of, you know, have they given up on theme tunes? Great question. And you've hit my bet noir because, um, and there's more than one reason for what you've correctly analysed, Ashley. The first reason is logistics, that the TV companies, because of the proliferation of TV channels, are paranoid about somebody flicking the button on their remote and going to a different station when their program is over. So it's all about keeping the momentum of a particular station going. Uh, My analogy for that 
however, is that it's a bit like going into a restaurant. Uh, you've ordered your main course and it's been a delightful main course and you've just eaten the last mouthful, which you're digesting and thinking, well, oh, it'd be quite nice to look at the menu in a few minutes' time. But let's have a little bit of a chat with people around my table. Um, and the waiter comes up, grabs your plate while you're still eating the last mouthful, plunges the menu in front of your face and said, what would you like for dessert? I can bring it back. Instead of letting you digest. And that's my analogy. And when you have seen a show on television that you've really enjoyed, you, you should be able to digest it. You don't want the, the presenter whamming the menu in your face saying, and what's going to follow is something completely different. You want to enjoy the programme. And the way to enjoy it is to enjoy the music that follows it. When EastEnders first came out, the end titles lasted one minute, 20 seconds. Now it lasts 28 seconds. It's been truncated. Fortunately, I wrote it in such a structural way that you can hack four bars away here, there. And I think we've actually got down to the run. I don't think you can take much more away from it. But um, it, so that that's the first reason that the schedulers and presenters are paranoid about people moving on. That has been mitigated because you are right that the screen does get squeezed. But the way they're doing it now is more acceptable that the credits still stay up to taking two thirds the size of most screens. And now with bigger screens, you can actually read the credits. Doesn't take care of the audio sound aspect of it because you are right, people still talk over it. And that therefore reduces the motivation of writers and producers to write something very special. Uh, there's a second reason also that um, we are talking about style and taste. And I think that every era, um, I heard Don Black on Radio 2 the other day, not being rude about current writers, but saying that the real maestros of their day, you know, the Rogers and Hammerstein and the real crafting lyricists who could write really fabulous lyrics, which married to really great songs, that that was of that time. And now, because pop artists, for business reasons, tend to write their own lyrics, you haven't got that skill going into the into the pop song that used to happen. I'm not saying Ed Sheeran isn't a great writer, he is, but he's one of many who are very, very similar kind of writers. And and to go back to style and, and, and periods that we live in, I think that in the last five to ten years, um, it's never been explicitly stated. I think the second element of what we're talking about is that it's no longer fashionable um, it's never been explicitly said but I, I just don't think that obvious melodies are as fashionable as they were say 10-15 years ago and it's more about creating impact so a lot of tv themes now are absolutely recognizable but not memorable. 
And there's a big difference between something being memorable and and creating a, a, an impact. I can think of a lot of TV themes now. You could just play me two seconds. I'd know instantly that's X Factor, that's whatever it is. But I'd be hard-pressed to sing you or play you instantly some of the melodies. And I think that's that's a fashionable um, trade that, that we're going through. Uh, cycles change. Uh, and presumably in a year or two's time, the cycle will go round again and suddenly producers will be saying, I want a really hooky, like a pop song thing. I'm not saying it doesn't happen now, but does that partly explain why? Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's quite interesting. You, you find that um, as well as that thing the credits at the end, I've noticed, say, on Netflix, for example, now, uh, they had a series recently called Hollywood, which actually is really well done. The aesthetically pleasing, really lovely. The credits were great at the beginning and, and quite dramatic credit. Really, really interesting to watch, not not just the music. Everything was really nice. Uh, but they've got a thing now on Netflix that says, skip the intro. So you don't even have to watch the intro anymore. It's like, and then right at the end, there's a thing on there. They won't actually, they won't actually allow you to listen, watch the credits or listen to the music. Because they literally, within thirty seconds, they're jumping you to the next program. You know, so it's quite—it's just quite, um, quite annoying. Yeah. Really, you know? It's worrying, but then you do have a choice. To go back to my analogy, if I was in the restaurant where the waiter didn't let me enjoy and digest my first course, I won't be going back to that restaurant. And and if I'm watching a TV station that doesn't respect what we're talking about and titles, I won't. I, I I will probably I won't ban or I won't stop watching, but I will be very discriminating about being loyal to that channel. And there is a karma there. Somebody will one day wake up in the Netflix office and say, "Why aren't we letting people enjoy the end titles?" It will take ratings to make them change their mind. And Netflix at the, at the moment is a very successful maker of programs but hey we go back to my favorite word of the day hubris well simon it's been absolutely wonderful to hear about um all your fantastic achievements over the years i was particularly fascinated with crossroads because i'd obviously associated crossroads with tony hatch and i didn't realize you were so involved in that and it's uh it's really interesting to hear your stories about about uh, uh lou grade and, and 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 of course um jack barton or whatever that was brilliant and and then of course to hear about EastEnders now it all evolved. I mean you've had a brilliant career, and um, you know good luck with it all and good luck with the book. Ashley, it's been great talking to you. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I wish uh, Distinct Nostalgia all the best in the future, and I do hope that we remain in touch. Distinct Nostalgia is produced by MIM, and there are loads more excellent shows to listen to on our website. Danny Rogers recalls growing up with 321's Dusty Bin. So my first encounter with Dusty Bin was my dad sort of wheeling him out as a young boy. I had no clue what this thing was and I was frightened, of course, but as it went on I was like, oh, this is my new best friend. <laughs> and I was one of the lucky few that actually had one in their bedroom. Cathy Gorey discusses the legacy of Rosemary the Telephone Operator. Hello, hello! I had an effect on a bunch of Gen Xers, or maybe I was their first female crush or something, but I meet men, some of them quite powerful now, who grew up watching me. 
you know, watching Rosemary, rather. But I thought, this is nuts. And they let me do pretty much what I wanted to do. Everything was always rhyming. Some you call the police department of Hong Kong. And that's that's what I thought Rosemary would sound like. And John Boy himself talks about his childhood with the Waltons. It was really one of the great ensemble TV shows. I mean, we had 11 regulars. And although the story was told from John Boy's point of view, one of the great things about the show was the main story could be about the littlest kid one week, or it could be about the grandparents. So you had all this wonderful generational comprehensiveness about it. And so I would call it first and foremost a great ensemble. These programmes and many more are available at distinctnostalgia.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to be notified whenever a new episode becomes available. And if you like what we do, then please consider supporting us on Patreon. Every penny helps us to make even more amazing content just for you. Go to distinctnostalgia.com and click on the donate button. Thank you for listening and bye for now. Distinct Nostalgia is brought to you in partnership with Life Rooms and Mersey Care NHS Foundation Trust. We've lots of activities for you to do at home at liferooms.org. Staying well, staying home.